and oh there we go all right okay everyone there's people there's people filtering in I've, i'm trying to figure out the instagram thing it's new to me um we're gonna we're gonna run the reel and then we're gonna get right back here we're gonna talk to murray see you in just a second I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium sized businesses while controlling risk. So, if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So, be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Are you thinking of growing your business or beginning a journey into entrepreneurship? Take a shortcut to success by buying an existing and profitable business the right way. Visit businessbuyeradvantage.com and learn more about my online training, group coaching, and consulting services designed to help you win. All right, Murray, great to have you joining me live today. Um, uh, I, you know, a lot of people in the audience probably don't know you. Here, let's uh, let's 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 get a close up here on your good side. Can we see uh, up close there? All right. Um, Looks like we froze. Am I, am I, look, we're already, we're breaking the internet in every way we can. Um, you and I actually met at a live event uh, last mm -hmm. fall. It was for franchisees of, uh, of, of Napa Auto Pro. Mm -hmm. And you spoke about operational issues in their, in their small business. So mm -hmm. why don't we kick off with a little bit of introduction from you? Why don't you tell us uh, who you are and about your background in the, in the auto repair industry? Sure. It was really good to be here again, David. Uh, 1986, started as a car wash attendant <laughs> at a service station. Uh, a year and a half later, I was operating my first one. Then I got into one a couple years later with repair bays. Uh, that didn't go very well. Um, somehow I had the fuel and convenience store figured out. And I had a great coach, like I guess like I am now, and uh, helped me with all of that. So 25 years later, I uh, was training um, dealers for major oil companies and then started doing this business coaching. Uh, for the aftermarket. So um, working with independent aftermarket shops, helping them be more profitable, um, have better lives, less stress, more vacation time, more flexibility, attract better clientele, attract better employees, and get prepared to sell their businesses. Um, had uh, at least a half a dozen successfully sell theirs in the last couple of years. So I keep losing clients. <laughs> well, so so this is interesting. Let, let's talk a little bit about your experience with the oil company. So when you were working with the oil company, you were helping these business owners, obviously, because if they were more successful as customers of yours, they would continue to grow and, and to buy more of your product, right? Yes. Um, well, I guess that would be a little bit different than what I do now. But basically, it was people who were taking over a new location. Uh, maybe they were business people in another setting and it was their first time doing that. So teaching them the systems, the processes of, you know, handling fuel, sales, you know, marketing, that kind of stuff, the convenience store, the car wash operations of all of that. Um, and then I sort of <clears throat> went way more into the bays because of the coach that helped me, uh, Bob O'Connor, that became my passion. And uh, basically now it's, it's just exclusively just with repair shops with bays, no more fuel. I haven't done that for 
over 20 years now. So, uh, well, the, yeah. the, the, the reason why I wanted to, to sort of mm. circle back on that one point yep. is that a lot of times when I'm talking with people about various different kinds of businesses, people will, um, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, where do I learn about this? Where do I learn about that? And one of the things that I, one of the places I will often point them to is to the suppliers in the industry, because people oh, don't see. really realize the, the suppliers to an industry have a huge vested interest in the success of the people they're selling goods and services to. Yeah. And yes. they will often have, you know, quite an array of tools available, uh, mm -hmm. but people often don't know to go and ask. Correct. Well, as you mentioned, we met at a Napa Auto Pro convention. You know, Napa Auto Parts, one of the biggest in the world, uh, provides a lot of resources for their dealers. Um, you know, me and a couple of my competitors being some of the resources that, that they bring along for them, right? And uh, some of their other competitors, um, you know, it's just, you know, we, you know, we can be very transparent here. World Pack, uh, you know, APD Auto Parts in Alberta. Uh, these, these are people who buy their products from them, their, their car parts from them. They, of course, want them to succeed because they want them to buy more, pay their bills. Right. And, and at the end of the day, they'll really you know what, David, there's a relationship that develops with our suppliers, right? If we could sort of go down that channel a little bit is, is having a good relationship with your supplier has a really huge effect on your profitability. Uh, in fact, in our world, automotive repair shops, a uh, fair bit of research has been done by a couple of people on the fact that if you buy 75% of your auto parts from one company, you will have about a 2% more net profit because of that loyalty. And because there's a lot of intangibles that happen. When you demonstrate that kind of loyalty, chances are if you have a rush delivery all of a sudden, you're going to get a rush delivery before your neighbor, right? Um, right. If you uh, want to help one of your clients out, maybe the water pump failed just past warranty, right? And one of the parts companies will say, you know what? You buy a lot from us. We'll cover that pump for you, even though it's a month past, right? So at the end of the day, these types of things end up being, you know, an additional 2% that even though... You know, you could probably get the same depth of discount from the other companies and stuff like that. It has to do more with with that relationship that uh, that you build with people. Um, this idea of beating up suppliers for the lowest price never serves any business well at all. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's it's funny that you say that. Uh, I remember one of my first jobs at a university. I um, I took a retail job while I was working in one of my first businesses. And the owner of that retail store had had uh, a lot of purchases with one particular supplier. And he let them know that he was interested in doing as much as possible price promotions if they could make him a, give him a good deal on, on pricing or, or whatnot. And because he was such a loyal customer of theirs, what would happen is when the salesperson had end of line or close out of mm -hmm. certain lines, they were calling him first to say, look, we've got 99 units of this stuff left. Well, let it let it go for this price if you want to take it all. And and he was regularly buying these line closeouts so that he then in turn could do a big promotion and special at the store. Um, mm -hmm. And it was only because of that relationship he was being made these offers. Other yeah. other people didn't get the opportunity. Yes. Those relationships can be so strategic and, and they become friendships, honestly. I... Um... There's people when I'm, you know, the, the few times that I still travel for a few things, um, there's people I will sit down to that I've known for 20 years. There's people that have retired and I'm still working 
And they're in Mexico right now, and we're chatting about how they're enjoying the weather in Mexico. We're still friends, right, over all these years of, of them being a supplier, either when I had my shop or, you know, working together as a, as a coach and a trainer. So. so, Murray, you were a guest speaker in my Business Buyer Advantage group coaching program. We talked a lot about sort of customer service aspects from the automotive industry that can be applied to many sort of service retail type businesses across the board. Uh, I know that today already in the in the comments, there's some people here that are involved in the auto industry. And I'd like to sort of, because it is such a huge industry with a diversified ownership, you know, uh, I, you could probably tell me what percentage of auto repair bays are probably independently owned? You know, versus like a dealer or something like that. Well, there's there's something like uh, 4,500 dealers in Canada, new car dealers, and they represent an average of 12, I forget the exact number, but a lot of bays, 12 to 15 bays. And you've seen some of the big 30 bay ones, right? Mm -hmm. And the number of aftermarket shops will range, depends on the study, from 12,000 to 16,000. But I think the 16,000 includes the uh, the big boxes. Right. So the, the Canadian tire, the Cal tire, the fountain tire, okay. more of a big box style thing. So so somewhere in that range in Canada, you know, yes, that's a, a big range, but it, I think it gives you a good idea of how many how many of them are. It, it could be half the bays then. Oh, like yeah. In terms, somewhere yeah, the bays, there. the average uh, independent shop is running six ish bays type of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So about half about half the size for sure. And there's a lot of real small ones, right? Like three bay mom and pop. We call them mom and pops. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, this is and, and the reason why it's an interesting industry is because it means that there is a lot potentially of, of these businesses that are going to change hands at some point. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone's going to want to retire or, or whatever other motivation is there. And so if someone is interested in the auto trade, um, th th there's certainly a lot of opportunity out there in, in any given city. There'll be a lot of these independently owned shops. What, what's some of the number one challenges or concerns that you see when you meet someone running one of these businesses? The biggest foundational challenge is lack of business training, lack of management training, lack of business from the business standpoint. Uh, most of the, let's use the 12,000, for example, if we eliminate the big box as a conversation, the 12,000, close to 95% of them are founded by automotive technicians, mechanics. This they're is the E-Myth thing. The, right. the, the, yeah, the Michael exactly, Gerber thing. Right? Yeah. Michael Gerber thing, right? They're, they're fantastic people. They're hardworking. They have this vision. They have this dream. And they wake up a year in, two years in, three years in, you know, working harder than they've ever worked, not having the money that they're, because they're focusing on the fixing of the car as opposed to the rest of it, or they're fixing on the sales as opposed to understanding gross profit margins and expenses. Um, and then of course you throw in lack of human resources, knowledge and skill, lack of leadership skill, lack of communication skill, um, you know, lack of hiring, lack of interview. So foundationally, that's the one piece. The opportunity for people buying places that are, and there's a lot of them like that, people are, are literally walking away in their 60s now because they've done okay. They've probably paid their, you know, they've got their mortgage and they maybe got a bit of savings. But a lot of them were counting on selling this business and there's not a lot there to sell because they haven't built up that goodwill, right? Yeah. The other current real challenge is the the shortage of automotive service technicians. The trades uh, is challenged that way. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Um, however, uh, the, the really well-run shops 
who understand how to run, how to be profitable, who attract the right clientele, the right vehicle mix, you know, have great profits, uh, have the money. They are attracting people. They're attracting technicians and service advisors and things like that. But that would be the sort of top sort of 10%. Everybody else right now is sort of scrambling. Uh, now, there's been a little dip. We've uh, we've kind of now got onto the normal economy post-COVID from my, this is Murray's perspective, because I'm not an economist, um, but we're now seeing a quiet February, you know, back to the way a lot of Februarys in the past used to be kind of a bit of a dip between seasons type of a thing. Um, and this is related to the, the the shortage of new cars for a couple of years there with, when all the manufacturing yeah. got, got kind of messed up. Okay. Well, part of, part of it was that. Part of it, there was just a lot of cash, you know, different subsidies. People people didn't spend money on, you know, they stayed home and stuff like that. So now, you know, if you look at my peers, then I talk to my friends, neighbors and peers, everybody's somewhere warm in, in February. So if they're, you know, their shops they go to, I think they're quiet. It's because their, their customers are all in Mexico or, or, or the Dominican or Cuba or something like that, right? So, and the money is going there. Um, but back to the shortage of technicians, um, we're actually very excited to be working with a whole bunch of people where we're attracting young talent. We are going to the high schools. We're going to the colleges. We're looking for smart young people who have an aptitude for either the advising part or the technician part and uh, and bringing them in and ramping their apprentices up really quickly. Now, they still have to do the normal four-year time in Canada that that they would need to do, but ramping them up in terms of the skill level that they learned right away. Um, because there's been this thing with apprentices over the years of kind of, they'll learn by osmosis. And just, just follow me around and watch me, and someday you'll be a mechanic like me. You know, now we're having people, you know, by their, by their first month, they're doing full oil changes and services. They're doing tire repairs, tire changeovers, tire rotations. By six months, they're doing brakes highly supervised, skilled young people, right? So that we can ramp them up. And it's kind of like creating a farm team for a professional team. More and more people, the larger shops are beginning to focus on the new and the young versus worrying about attracting somebody else and, and from a competitor. So, so work, I though. mean, tra traditionally in industry, if you want to dial the clock back, um, you know, there were sort of the, the, the trade guilds, you know, if you want to think about craftsmen in the 19th century. And then when the big factories came along, they had no choice but to train their employees on how to do the different jobs because there was no other place to learn these things. Uh, over the last couple of decades, businesses like auto repair have kind of leaned upon, you know, colleges and things to kind of create that workforce, right? Are, are you saying they're, they're taking the, the training initiatives more in hand to try to get people more productive more quickly, like a, a more concerted effort to to teach the well, skills to people? Well, many of the colleges, and I'm familiar with them primarily in Canada. I know that you have a broader yeah. audience than that. And I, I'm aware of some pretty decent colleges in parts of the United States. Apparently, there's a couple of really good ones in Utah. Um, forget the name of them, but I have heard of them through one of my American competitors. Um, the colleges are, for the most part, doing a pretty good job. Um, they Some of them are behind on the curriculum. So in other words, they're still teaching carburetors when maybe we should do a little bit more EV and hybrid. <laughs> um, but uh, it's more about the automotive shop owner taking responsibility for the workforce. In other words, it used to be we mm. assumed that a group of young people, usually male, like cars, do auto shopping, you know, mechanic shop in high school, you know, decide that they want to go pump gas at a gas station evenings and weekends and eventually begin working on cars. And that's kind of the natural progression, right? 
we kind of relied on the colleges to do their thing, the apprenticeship boards to do their thing, and and we eventually had some apprentices. And to the to, and to my and this is you know I'm probably going to really tick a few people off, but those that know me will know where I'm coming from on this. The number of shop owners who have complained to me that their apprentice forgot to register for their next level of school. And I'm like, well, didn't you remind them? Wasn't it on a calendar? And I'm like, they're like, well, that's their responsibility. They're the apprentice. They should be the ones signing themselves up. And I'm like, you just missed an opportunity to take a young person from second year to third year. Because I said, I'm 60 in my 60s and I have a Google calendar. If I don't look at my Google calendar, I will miss meetings. I misread my calendar this morning, much to David's stress, and I was a couple of minutes late because I assumed nine o'clock. So if a 60-something-year-old guy can make a mistake in the calendar, for goodness sakes, let's have a calendar for these apprentices and set a reminder for them to go. Yes, they're the ones that have to sign up and register for the course, and that is their responsibility. I'm not trying to take away the responsibility from the apprentice, but for goodness sakes, folks, let's have a plan. Let's have a calendar. Let's calendar their whole career out for the first four years so that we have great young people. Leaving it up to them, we're going to keep getting what we've got, which is insanity. So, so you're, you're basically just talking about the human resources development aspect of the business yeah. becoming part of the overall plan, yeah. the strategic plan of how we operate this business. And that is new for a lot of these shows. Oh, listen, David, I'm working on a concept of best practices with meetings, staff meetings, and things I've discovered and brought into play. Uh, this probably goes back maybe 10 years or so, so not that modern, but it's still an issue. I asked the shop owner, you know, coached him to having his first staff meeting, and he was shaking. He was that nervous to have a meeting with his staff. And I'm thinking to myself, if you are that nervous as the owner, you lack those communication skills, even the most basic. I'm not talking about being an outgoing speaker like David and me, right? Just, just be yourself. You can be an introvert and still run a meeting. But the lack of skills in running meetings, well, you know, the, the meetings always turn into bitch sessions. Well, who's responsible for that, <laughs> right? Just a key piece of advice for anybody listening. Very early on in my career, somebody taught me that anybody can bring a concern slash complaint to a mm -hmm. staff meeting as long as they bring two possible solutions along with that complaint. You know what happens when a human being has to think of two possible solutions to something they're complaining about? They generally stop complaining. <laughs> or sometimes they can fix it on their own. Exactly. You know, that's kind of where we're going <laughs> with that, right? So, so I would say another issue, never mind that, you know what? Thank you for asking the question the way you did. It's not so much a shortage of technicians. It's a shortage of owners who understand the whole human resources, leadership, and communication piece. Because honestly, so if you can do that, you got it. So you, you you're you're kind of circling back in another way to this whole mechanic versus entrepreneur kind of thing, Me mechanic versus business owner with skills kind of thing. So it's interesting because I I, I know my, my father in law owns one of these businesses, and he started off his career as a mechanic. And one of the things that he has said to me over the years is he has said that it it took him a really long time to learn the lesson that he cannot pick up a wrench because that's not where he de delivers the most value to the business. It's either up front doing something with a customer or it's upstairs making sure things are, are operating properly, right? Looking at numbers and reports and stuff like that. And, and so let me ask you this, and 
I've said many times on this channel that if you're going to buy a business, you should have some understanding of what goes on in the business. You should know the business to some degree, not necessarily that you need to be, for example, a mechanic. Do you think an experienced business manager in some other industry could do well coming into one of these shops as an owner? Do you think it needs to be a certain minimum size? Like what scenario would you see that being a good thing? Or how do you think that that idea would fail? The best and most quick implementation of improvement and change in a business has been by non-mechanics buying shops Okay, that I've seen. Now, I will say um, having some training from somebody like me, doesn't have to be me, but me or my competitors, with some of the unique features of automotive versus other businesses would probably keep you safer and steadier. But let me give you an example of someone. I can't use their names just for privacy reasons, but they're serial entrepreneurs. They have farmed uh, for many years. They sold farm. They then had a mortgage brokerage firm. They then had a real estate firm. So they've had at least, I forget, five or six different businesses that they've built up and then they've sold. And the two of them as a couple sat down and said, okay, our kids have now reached a certain age. They're just all beginning to graduate from high school. We want a business that will have this kind of revenue, this kind of margin, this kind of location close to our home, something that each of our children could find a role in. Um, so they had a set of criteria that they laid out, and then they put it out to people like you, a person like you, right? A, a broker or somebody you know in the know of, of businesses that were for sale, and they were brought an automotive shop as one of the options. The next thing you know, mm-hmm. um, luckily through one of the parts suppliers, they heard about me and took my three-day smart course. And these folks have been amazing. What they have brought to their shop, what they have brought to their peers in my coaching, um, like she, her, her knowledge of HR and, and all that kind of stuff is absolutely amazing. Um, his ability to, to lead people and communicate has been amazing. I mean, the two of them are just out of this fantastic team. So to me, it was just a dream made in heaven for that that shop. You know, now you know, has there been ups and downs? Have there been some staffing things? It's in a fairly small community in the prairies of Canada. So they transitioned some of the changes slowly in terms of mm-hmm. policies and pricing and different things like that. They were, you know, it took them about two years to sort of flip it over to where it was run completely the way it should have been. But it, it's an amazing thing. And I see this, I see this happening all the time. And <clears throat> on that note, there's been some big discussions with my American peers about consolidation in the States, consolidation okay. in in veterinary clinics, dental clinics, accounting firms, and now automotive, where these um, income funds or whatever you want to call them are buying up shops and creating these franchise chains of shops and things like that. Now, at the end of the day, business is business, and these are some of the things that are going to happen. But a lot of us are thinking, if, if, the, if the existing owner of the shop doesn't get their act together and start running it the way it should and be profitable, um, it's going to get sold for less than it could be worth. But also, that reduces the number of opportunities for other one time, like single individuals who want to be business owners to buy that shop. Luckily for Canada, I mean, the United States is huge. There's way, way, way more shops there, way more opportunity. But luckily in Canada, the consolidation has not really got here. There is a little bit of it. We're talking, you know, six together, 12 shops together, that type of sort of a smaller thing, um, which, you know, is not a bad is not a bad model for somebody to do. But more of that, uh, more of that could happen. And one of the concerns I have with that is because we're a smaller country, lower population, it then reduces the number of choices for vehicle owners. 
for the consumer yeah. actually right at a certain point uh when it gets going that direction so um it's a it's a really interesting time right now david in our sector in terms of opportunity um you know there's if i could digress momentarily into technology and the whole hybrid ev thing you know i i've always said with any of this kind of stuff um we'll just react respond to it be proactive respond to it as it rolls out you know we don't have to think about 2035 or 2050 just are we ready to serve our clients that are beginning to make the transition to those types of vehicles meeting with one of my really long-term wise clients he's been in business for a long time bought the business from the parent from his parents um he said the transition of technology from 1980 to 2010 was greater than from 2010 to now like in terms of for what automotive technicians had to learn right they're, they're okay. like so or even a little bit earlier than that so if we if we think about let's say like you know in my time feedback carburetors in in the early 80s to full fuel injection to all the stuff that happened um you know with computerized cars and all that kind of stuff like that the transition from that to now is just more computerization honestly it, you know, yeah, so so you're saying the industry's already gone through these kinds of things. It's just that times. maybe maybe now it's more of a headline item because the Correct. the cars are electric versus gasoline. Correct. Right. Yeah. I've uh, I visited a I don't I'm not involved in the collision sector, but I visited a client who owns both collision and mechanical. We call the ones that you know the, that that's the difference in my world. But I visited. He gave me a tour of his collision shop, and uh, it was half full of Teslas. And I'm like, are these much different than, no, he says, it's just nuts and bolts just have to be, you know, they're designed a bit differently, built a bit differently, but you, you just learn, you take the training and you adapt to it and, you know, just we'll rock and roll, right? <laughs> like it's just, he didn't, didn't even blink. We've got some interesting comments that have come in here since we've started. We have OT who says he's looking forward to this one. Hey, good to see you there today, OT. Uh, Victor from Nottingham says he just hit the like button. I hope that everybody else out there watching uh, takes a moment, hits the like button. It helps helps us uh, deliver this content to more people. And we got uh, someone with a very spicy name says hello from Northside Auto Pro in Chatham. How you doing? Good to see you. And then um, we got a comment here from Dave McKenzie. The book Great CEOs Are Lazy is a great book for getting out of the day-to-day -day and focusing on the business. Mm -hmm. And I haven't read that book. Have you heard of that one? No, I haven't actually. I'm right. going to take a screenshot of that. <laughs> well, may maybe I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll put that on my reading list too. It sounds good. Um, and, and so, so um, basically, in the example that you gave of the of the family that bought the small town automotive business, it sounds like they were experienced business people, mm -hmm. but because they were getting into a new industry, they weren't quite knowledgeable of. They went looking for some way to fill that gap, and that's what led them to you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's, I, I, I think it's a great example. I think every sector will have its unique piece. I don't want to sound like, you know, I know the a secret. There's not a secret sauce per se, um, but it's it's. I think what's partly unique to automotive is the transition that the industry went through that a lot of people are not watching. And let me explain to that. So, for example, if I think of a a veterinary practice, a dental practice, a legal practice, accounting firm plumbing, electrical, all of those kind of things like that. They're all time-based businesses, right? We bill for time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, generally they bill, you know, by the hour, straight time. In fact, the, the other trades will bill for driving time, mileage, the whole bit, right? Our industry, 
which should have evolved like that back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, you know, we did have what we called labor guides and we had different ways and instructions on how we should run our companies and bill. We went down what was called a commodity-based path. Now, this is Murray's Murray's version of history. Right? Okay. So we went down gasoline stations, fixed cars, and new car dealers, fixed cars. Those were the two main primary business models. There was not a lot of, there was no big box. There was no aftermarket independent. You either took your car to a garage, gas station, or you took your car to a new car dealer. Now, back right. in the day, new car dealers only had bays because the franchise made them for warranty purposes. New car dealers saw technicians as a cost, hence the reason for the way that they pay their people. Service stations focused on selling fuel and oil and convenience store stuff. The bays were just this little gravy piece. So what ends up happening is, is people think that when you buy an automotive shop, you're selling brake jobs, you're selling oil filter, you're selling these, these services, when in reality, you're not. You're selling time. Right. And as soon as you get your head around that you sell time, like all the, all the other professions, and realize that the brake pads come with it, or the oil filter comes with that time, then all of a sudden the light bulb goes on and away you go. Because if you join the whole thing trying to sell more oil changes and setting up coupons on brake jobs, you will be broke in six months. Even this couple, they wouldn't have, I don't think, you know, they're too wise to go down that path, but I've, I've seen it, right? Where people think that it's all about price. We've, we've commoditized the automotive industry, whereas the ones that are the most successful are ones who have broken out of the commodity model and are find the clientele that are looking on how to be served well. Right. They don't want to. It's not about the price of an oil change. It's about how well are you looking after me and my vehicle? So, yeah. And, yeah. and so and this is what I've what I've heard from successful operators is that developing the clientele who understand that certain maintenance jobs are an investment in making sure their car will continue to work well yeah. and last longer, et cetera. Yeah. Those clients are are worth more versus mm -hmm. the people that just wait for things to break and then come and seek a repair. And so can you talk a little bit about how someone in this industry would go about looking to build a clientele of those those people with that mindset that kind of see their spending at an auto repair business as an investment in preserving the capital of their of their vehicle? There's some great information on this. Um, the four to seven year old vehicle is generally seen by the owner as having a lot of value still. Now, in our day and age, most people have loans uh, up to six years. Um, 72 months is kind of the average, at least in Canada, for vehicle financing. So it's that four to seven-year-old car. It's just off the new car dealer warranty, and the owners look at it going, it's still a $40,000, $50,000 car in their mind. So they will update it and keep it going and things like that. Uh, that number is stretching into the eight, nine, sort of 10-year range just because cars are being made better. There's some, you know, the features last a bit longer and things like that. So what we want to do is we want to go after that marketplace but the thing is, is the new car dealers have stolen 60% of that market share. We used to have 90 in the aftermarket. We've given away a ton of it. Um, and they've done it through all kinds of different and, methodologies. And how do you define aftermarket? Is it post-warranty or just after post, it's been sold? Uh, post-warranty. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, post-warranty. So a couple of things that work really, really well, these couple of exercises, is we look up recalls. For vehicles now we as in the aftermarket post warranty cannot do recalls we can't do warranty work it still has to go back to the new car dealer but we can be the agent for our client so we look up recalls we drive it down to the dealer we have them look after it we bring it back we wash it vacuum it and the thing is is there's again pardon me for all the canadian stats um we have something like 24 million licensed vehicles on the road in canada there are something like 21 million orphaned recalls in canada 
the new car dealers are either overwhelmed, understaffed, or have just dropped the ball and following, following up on these recalls. Um, and it's not that they don't want to do them. They get paid by the manufacturer to do them. It's not, you know, it's, it's still business for them. But as soon as me in the aftermarket brings up a recall to you, David, that your dealer didn't bring up, who now becomes the expert? Now, right, right now I become the it's, expert. It's a trust building it's activity. It's a trust building activity, right? And then the yeah. second one is the perception that the shop is not qualified to work on my brand of car. We tend to, in the aftermarket, advertise on our signs, you know, all makes and models. Well, that's an internal word, in my opinion. I don't think, you know, one of the reasons why the new car dealers have as great a market share as they have is because the, the sign says Honda and it says Honda on my steering wheel. The steering wheel is kind of going to go there, right? Like, <laughs> you know, as, as I'm a brand awareness type of a thing. But one of the things I do an exercise with my clients and we do an exercise where we phone all of our clients or we reach out to them in some fashion when they drop off their car, phone, email, text, and we update our database. We ask them about for current address, current email address, current mobile number, uh, current list of vehicles that we've been servicing. Mention that we haven't seen this one vehicle for maybe a couple of years. You know, what's going on with it? And they'll probably say, well, it got written off or we sold it. So then we delete it from the database. And then at that point is a natural conversation. We say anything else you're driving that maybe we haven't had a chance to service. And the person will say, well, yeah, I bought a new Volkswagen Passat. Um, but you guys don't work on Volks. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I just, Ryan just came back from a Volkswagen course. Like, pardon me for not telling you that we work on Volkswagens. And the guy's like, I dealt with you for 17 years with my Honda. I'm coming back. Right. And this is a true story. His name was David as well. I wanted to say his last name just in case somehow in my network of life, this guy still follows me. Um, I got his Passat, his wife's Toyota Sienna and three daughters, Honda Civics out of one phone call. By just connecting with my database and, and updating and, and being of service and being able to talk about the kinds of vehicles that I work on, right? Huge opportunity. And so, you know, you're talking about going into your database of customers and actually creating communication with them, uh, a sales call, a two-way call. Yeah. And so this has got to be one of the things that I'm imagining most independent shops just don't do at all. They probably just wait for the phone call to ring or for people to walk through the front door. Wait for it to ring. Wait for the walk in the front door. Follow, follow uh, into scams for selling cheap packages and coupons to marketers. Uh, spend thousands of thousands of dollars on Google Ads. You know the Google Ads are great, but they don't know how to do them, so they're wasting their money, right? Or so the idea is: is car count, car count. I just finished the material for a course I'm teaching in April, and if I could reverse engineer it, 485 clients. Two vehicles per client. So let's say 500 for sake of argument, right? Yeah. A thousand vehicles, two visits a year, averaging $600 a visit, $650 a visit for all for legitimate ethical repairs and maintenance is $1.3 million in sales at a 20% net and $100,000 uh, owner's compensation salary on top of that. So we're talking 350000 full owner's compensation out of $1.3 million in sales with uh, 500 clients. Now, do we have turnover? Yes. People die, people move, people sell cars. Do we still need to market? Yes. We need to replace, uh, but we need to replace about 10% a year. So we need to be getting about 12% growth. But just to reverse engineer it, if you actually follow the, the model, you could have one point, and that's not that big of a shop. That's three technicians and two service advisors and four or five bays could do that comfortably. And, and honestly, I've never done the math on number of clientele that sort of graphically recently, 
but I've got lots of clients that are the three techs, two advisors, the owner, bookkeeper doing one and a half, 1.6 million. You know, as soon as you want to get up to higher than that, you need more bays and more techs um, just because you need the volume, right? To get to the higher numbers. And, well, like and, and so, you know, I, I think when I, when I came over and spoke with, with a group of, of your um, clients, I was talking about mm -hmm. this, about the, the value in the customer database, because I've run into so many businesses, both in automotive and in other industries where that they just don't take care of the client database. So there's a lot of antiquated old records that haven't been touched mm -hmm. in a long time. And this is where a buyer is going to be able to quantify value. We, we mentioned earlier about goodwill value, but the way people get, kind of get their hands around goodwill is they say, show me the list of customers and where can I see how recently that person has been here, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's, it's curating and, and taking care of that database and making sure it's current and up to date, which is what's going to really give the value yeah. to the buyer but the the act of <clears throat> updating and taking care of the list is also what generates sales yes yeah. and back to relationships like we did with our talked about our suppliers right to me automotive probably like most other things is a relationship uh business and there's still research coming out in different forms or another that around 50 to 60 percent of north americans are still looking for a shop to have a relationship with they keep going into a place and they're either processed because the place is so busy in and out or they are upsold without building a relationship or whatever. Right. But somewhere will, will somebody just listen to me. Can, can somebody just take some time to understand, help me understand my car, take some time with me. But the, the model again, so commonly is, is one advisor with seven technicians at the back. That poor advisor has got no time of the day to even give anybody the time of day. Not that I'm criticizing that person, but that's yeah. just that's just the raw that's a broken model right and, and so the the people who are looking for that relationship are these the people who might get drawn to some of these big box brands like if they can't have a relationship with people they're at least going to be drawn to maybe a brand they recognize or, or have some degree so of faith in they're they're because this is why the new car dealers have got such big market share is they're drawn back to the dealer because of the brand, not the relationship. Like their feedback on many dealers is not that great of a client experience, right? Again, you know, I, I don't want to just paint them all with a bad brush because there are some good ones. And there's good people, there's good people working at dealers, like all across our nations. Um, yeah. It's just that the system of how a dealer works is they report to a factory and the factory will always win over the retail customer. Always, 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 right? So there's a conflict of interest when you bring in your car to the dealer. But people default to brand. If they can't get what they want, well, at least it says Toyota on the sign or it says Chev on the sign. At least I'll be accountable to that. The big box stores, some of them are tire oriented. So then they get attracted there because you know, tires is a big purchase. It's a big decision for any consumer. It's one of the biggest things you can buy for your vehicle is a set of four tires. Um, the box stores tend to be, be be priced or appear to be priced less, so that people so the box stores tend to be more of a price commodity based. They've, they've continued the service station model based on pricing and coupons and flyers and stuff like that. Honestly, is how they're getting people in their door. So people are going to either default to brand or default to price, as opposed to default to that relationship and. You know, is it hard going? I, uh, man, let's, I'll be blunt. But man, is it rewarding when it's working well, right? It, you know, it's very profitable. It's a very calm environment for the staff, for the technicians there. You know, yeah. 
Can you, can you tell us a story of, of a client maybe that you've helped, what some of the challenges were in, you know, in the last 10 minutes that we have here, what some of the challenges were that they were facing, maybe how their shop was performing, and then some of the things that they implemented as far as changes uh, in order to get a, a much better operating business? Well, let me go at this from two, two points of view that are, that are okay. commonly that we do with people. One point of view is taking a look at their numbers, their key performance indicators, and generally looking at gross profit right? Gross profit dollars, gross profit percentages based on what we know works best in the industry. And we'll identify that they're too low, right? They have a misconception of how they're supposed to charge for their parts and things like that. So I've got one client um, in central Canada who joined us about 18 months ago and his gross profit on parts was just shy of 30%. And it's kind of a default number, 30%, because a lot of people think 50% markup is what they're supposed to do, but markup and margin are different. So if you yeah. mark something at 50%, it's only about a 33% margin. So part of it is just lack of knowledge when we show them that so the light bulb goes on. So over the course of the last 18 months, he's gone from 30 to 47 as of last month. In his specific case, that's $10,000 a month in gross profit dollars. Right. Like this is insane, right? Now, in the process, as it was raising, he did have a few rare objections from clients in terms of pricing. They, they compared him to somebody or maybe compared him to past invoices or things like that. And uh, he said he worked, he and his advisor worked through those conversations and uh, they lost a half a dozen clients in 18 months over pricing. They may have lost other ones over other things. And he said three of them, I wasn't so glad to see the, their backside leave my business. They've always been a challenge, right? Over right. whatever, right? That kind of thing. The other side is is more operational and uh, is, you know, book more cars, book more cars, get them in, you know, offer somebody an appointment for 10 o'clock. Uh, they show up at 10 and the hoist and technician are tied up because something broke on that car. Now I can't clear the hoist off. So we start working at scheduling and uh, helping people understand that, listen, the world of cars today, we can no longer have these wait appointments anymore. They just, cars are just changed too much, too complex. Supply chain issues were already an issue pre-COVID, and they've just so been exacerbated. A, a wait appointment, meaning that the client shows up and expects to sit in a chair for an hour while something is done. For an hour while done. they're doing oil change, yeah. Right. right? Okay. Now, think about it. I mean, you know, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but, um, you know, we have these quick doctor's appointments in our system these days, right? We're supposed to book one appointment for every incident that we, we do for. Um but I'm very privileged and very lucky that I have a great, I still have a doctor. And uh, he said, Murray, you know, it's been a couple of years. We need to do a full workup. So I had all my blood work, all my fluids tested, <laughs> you know, uh, a full examination. Uh, you know, I got some moles and stuff like that. And so the it's frustrating when we can just do these one-off appointments when really what we want to do is sit down with the doctor and go over our health, right? Well, cars want the same thing. Now, of course, I'm anthropomorphizing a little bit. Um, they can't verbalize that, but the best way to look after a car is to look at it as identity, not just change the oil. How is the rest of it? Which means that we need to do some form of inspection, which means that it's going to be a little bit longer than what an oil change takes. And maybe it does need a fluid service, or maybe it does need a front brake service at that point. Why would we have to book multiple appointments? And the interesting thing is, for some of the driving public, they have they think they have to book it all separate because we taught them that i booked my oil change and then two weeks later i booked my tire change over and then two weeks later i book in my my brakes and then three weeks later i book in a filter 
when you show the client, hey, why don't we do it all together in one visit? A lot of them are like, sweet, why didn't you offer this to me before? Because <laughs> now I'm only going to be without my car for a full day, which is fine. I can I can manage that. I can get alternative transportation. Or maybe the shop has alternative transportation. Versus now I'm going to lose a half a day four times in this, in this year. Yeah. The consumer is actually... So it's counterintuitive to the way the shop owner thinks because they think the consumer wants will wait appointments when in reality the 60% that want the relationship, they don't want a will wait appointment. They don't want to be processed. They want to come in. They want to talk calmly. They want to have a coffee with you. They want to leave their car for the day and then have you communicate throughout the day and then have a convenient pickup time, right? And now with digital communication, this whole world of digital vehicle inspections that we can do now, absolutely amazing to meet those expectations. It's, it's interesting to hear you say this because I honestly, I have not thought about this because the, the shop where I take my car to is a short walk from my house. So I, I have always just driven it over and then walked home and then wait for them to call me in the afternoon to say it's done. I go, go down and get it. Yeah. And um, but every time I'm there, I see people sitting in chairs. Yeah. And and I and I wonder I'm like oh how long is that person going to be here like the, the, you know it, it seems so I don't know yeah I'm just do I have do I have three more minutes yeah yeah okay so COVID identified this process called contactless service we were mandated in other words the vehicles had to be dropped off you know through a key drop system or some other kind of sanitized bucket. Um, everything was then communicated, phone, digitally, but, you know, everything was done that way. And then the vehicle was picked up, the keys were, you know, you paid your bill digitally and you picked up your keys in a sanitized box, whatever, right? Well, believe it or not, eight, nine months into this whole thing, consumers were like, this is fantastic. I don't know why I sat and waited at the shop before. I don't know why I thought I had to wait, right? Why, like, it wasn't about trust. There's a few consumers that are a bit about, you know, they got to watch everything because they don't want to get ripped off. But for whatever reason, it was a model that they assumed they had to be. And it got to be where 70% were like, this is awesome. And then as the pandemic prolonged, we were still in essential service. So we were one of the few legal places where people could come and actually chat with a human being. And so then it dropped back off again down to about 45 to 50 where people began to bring their cars and wait again because they were allowed, but it was more about a social occasion. This was researched by J.D. Parton Associates. I mean, we're talking a serious organization, research organization. Mm -hmm. So post-pandemic, we've now landed in a in a 45% range of people who want that. I, as a person who's on Zoom all day or in meetings like this, I can see my truck sitting out there, would love nothing more than it to be picked up, serviced, brought back at the end of the day. I can pay through my computer, my phone. They can send me digital inspections in between my meetings. Um, and you know what? It's a half hour drive each way. A cab is $45 each way. It's $90. If, if my bill averaged, you know, $80 to $100 more on average for whatever they did compared to their competitors, I wouldn't care because I am working for two more hours in my day that would be taken out by doing with the car, right? Hey, listen, I just recorded a video. It's going to be released in a couple of weeks about valuing your time. It's, it's right up that alley. And this here's a question here. Uh, from Moncton Strong it says, any opinion on courtesy drive home and pickup while the vehicle is being serviced? You just talked about the idea of of someone coming to your home to pick up the car. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, is there any? You know, I guess we get back to the same research. Like, is there any um, preferred system, or do you think it has to do with the clientele that the shop is serving? I think it it depends with the, the clientele, the area. So, for example, a smaller community, more rural. People are driving further to get to you. 
Um, it makes more sense for them to wait for some smaller services or maybe do their, you know, but maybe provide a ride to, to the grocery store for them. You know what I'm saying? In a larger urban center, um, a lot of my clients are beginning to use Uber for business and they're just giving people an Uber ride wherever they need at their own cost at the shop owners. Mm -hmm. Now, again, is it built into the gross profit model of that, of that experience? Of course it is, but the consumer there, I believe most of them are wise enough to know that it's all built in. So Uber for business is a great alternative. Um, through the pandemic and currently, I probably still have half a dozen people who uh, do pickup and delivery for a small charge. Uh, $15 each way is the most common uh, common amount in, Cal in Calgary, Regina. Uh, in fact, I still know one shop in Regina that's still fully contactless. They loved, they loved not having people walk in their door and interrupt them for stupid things. They do everything digitally and dropping off after hours. <laughs> right? So they, uh, they it, cho they've chosen a clientele that's happy with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, if you if you serve a professional clientele who has a high sort of hourly rate of, of income for their own efforts, yeah. uh, $15 pickup and drop off charge is nothing. Right. It's now, a great a couple, value. There's a couple of people have experimented with this and uh, the issue was more about staffing than cost. Uh, one guy I know uh, bought six courtesy vehicles, loaners, um, had a valet who would then, so an example of my place, would drop off the car uh, here, take my vehicle, and then we would have a vehicle for the day. My wife might, you know, she'd be a bit more active than I would like throughout the day for other stuff. Uh, she would use the car and then she could either swap it out at the shop for her car or they could bring it back and swap back out at the house, right? Um, but just having that right person to be the valet that was willing to drive customers but also wash and vacuum customers sometimes was, uh, the, the shop found that challenge. I think they're still doing it. They found the right person again, but that's another sort of high-end model of, uh, of client care that we could take this business to, right? We've got another comment here from Mark who says, I just read in uh, a book, I'm guessing, How the Rubber Meets the Road, about using a $39.99 inspection to sort out customers that are concerned with upkeep, which are the best customers versus the others. Have you ever heard of this sort of method of, of sorting out your customers? I, <laughs> I teach all of my clients, we implement systems and procedures and the systems and procedures will sort out the customers. Uh, so having a good inspection process uh, for a fee will help sort that out because you identify people who are interested in their vehicle versus somebody who's just looking for the cheapest yeah. price. So the specific dollar value of that $39.95 might be good in some markets. There's no criticism of it. Uh, we teach a staged inspection process where we give everybody a small complimentary of 0.2 12-minute visual inspection which then tells the, our technician what level of inspection to offer at that case. If, it's, if the car is well looked after, it could be a $40 inspection. If the vehicle has been driven for a while and not inspected, maybe it's a full inspection for $200. So we, we actually use a range. Um, and to the point where we actually work with our clients to pre-book their next appointment. I've got shops that half their database is pre-booked for the year for their, for their visits, like a dentist office, right? At that point, we've qualified those clients' expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen that before where, where both with my own cars and, and where I've happened to be at the shop where people were in there talking, where the, the service um, the service writer will say to the person, you know, your car is due for this, uh, you know, in so many kilometers. Yeah. And so we're going to let's book you in for three months from now and, and schedule it. So and, and yeah, the, the word free means two things in automotive. It means that the shop who's offering free will be broke within a span of a short span of time. Uh, or they've actually hidden that cost of free somewhere else. You're actually probably paying more than you would at a shop that actually charges you for it. Free, 
we always taught our kids if it's too good to be true, it is usually too good to be true. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm I'm not following with the with the free. Oh, okay. So so um, let's say for example, you know, we offer a free inspection instead of charging forty dollars, and we tracked all of these people who come in for the free inspection, right? Right. Um, and then because you know, and we give away, so we give away twenty inspections in a day. We've lost all that time that we haven't built. If we don't understand the rest of it, the rest of how business works, we'll go broke because we're giving away free. What a right, lot of because you're you're putting all that labor expense out. Right, yeah. but, but a lot of people will give it free, but then instead of adding, you know, then the break job will actually be fifty dollars more than what it would have been done without the inspection. So what they're doing is they're padding the rest of the work right. to compensate themselves for the free inspection. So they've shifted. So it isn't really free; it's just hidden, right? Yeah, in, in my experience, you know, to get to back to Mark's point here, um, there's no better way to understand someone's level of motivation than than if somebody opens their wallet. You know, because if someone's really motivated and interested in doing something, that they're going to be willing to pay money for it. And so, just having some kind of charge to uh, determine someone's uh, desire is important. Back when I used to run my business brokerage office, we were required sellers to pay us an engagement fee um, and bring in a whole bunch of documents. And so people that were kind of lukewarm, that weren't really motivated to sell their business, they would rarely come back. Uh, other people would show up two days later with a check and all the documents I asked for. And so I, I would say to my buyers, like, this is definitely a motivated person who really wants to sell the business because they've, they've jumped through these hoops that I've put in front of them and, and they want to move forward with some degree of speed. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Good example. Murray, this is great. We're, we're kind of up at the end of our time, but if, if people are out there in the automotive world, they want to learn more about you. I know you've got some content that you put out online as well, talking about this sort of thing. What, what's the best way people can reach you? Um, Murray Voth at rpmtraining.net is my email address, or just go to rpmtraining.net on the internet, and there's a contact form there you can fill in and, and elaborate on some questions, and I can reach back out to you. It'd be a privilege. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Murray. I know it's been a great show. Uh, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Take care, David. So, how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? easy. Go over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, and more. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go to Mark Willis at Lake Growth Financial, today's video sponsor, Mark helps people better manage their personal and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've seen others use it successfully for years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find all the interviews I've done with Mark and learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up for a free consultation to learn what this solution might look like for you.